Good morning. And as we begin class with prayer today, I have a couple of sad announcements to make. And, and I want to apologize because I've been traveling so much. A couple of these should have been made over the last couple of weeks. But we've had three of our members have had deaths in the family in the last few weeks. Um, Dean Scott, who was our board member and IT director, sister, passed away. Uh, Linda Ojala, who substitute teaches for me sometimes, her father uh, um, Dean's sister's Valerie, by the way, and her father, uh, Don Wheeler, passed away. And then George Graves, a longtime uh, supporter and member of our class, uh, his mother, uh, Mary Lou Graves, passed away this week. So I want to remember all those families in our prayers and thoughts and hearts. Gracious Father in heaven, we uh, thank you so much that you are God of love and truth and that you have conquered death and that you have uh, the message of mercy to lighten the world for your return. And that's what we long for. And we ask that we will present you clearly today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. You know, when I, when I hear about the deaths like this, it reminds me, it's been 24 years almost since my father died. And in the aftermath of my father's death, it, it really came to me uh, that if we as a Christian people would do the mission of taking the final message to the world, then the Lord would come. You know, Paul t- I mean, Peter talks about hastening the day, that we could hasten the day. And so that's one of the reasons we do what we do, because we really do want to hasten the day, want to be with our loved ones again and see the Lord come. We're doing lesson number six in the, in the quarterly, the book of Romans. And the title this week is Adam and Jesus. Before we uh, even get to the lesson, though, I had a, one of our online listeners, Bobby uh, Miskamen, uh, posted on our Facebook page last night um, a quote from one of the founders of uh, the SDA church regarding our discussion uh, last time I was here on imputed versus imparted righteousness. And this is what he posted. He posted the quote, and then he actually talked about what he thought it meant. It says, righteousness within is testified to by righteousness without. He who is righteous within is not hard-hearted and unsympathetic, but day by day he grows into the image of Christ, going from strength to strength. Notice what's being described here. That internal change. He who is being sanctified by the truth will be self-controlled and will follow in the footsteps of Christ until grace is lost in glory. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. And he goes on to read. That was out of Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. He goes on to, uh, to write. Reading the other quotes provided in the lesson, um, for me, if you remember, where it talked about the imputed righteousness, being, uh, we're being transformed or being renewed by the imputed righteousness. Uh, putting those quotes together, he writes, um, righteousness further clarifies what's meant by this phrase. So in my mind, there is a distinction between uh, these two, imputed versus parted, but they're merely two steps in the same process. One, by God's imputed righteousness, the human heart is restored to its original design, Ezekiel eleven fifteen, the good tree is restored, Luke six forty three, we are grafted into the vine, John fifteen one. The whole and then two, the Holy Spirit in cooperation with our new hearts and, and spiritual natures works out the imparted righteousness and sanctification. And he asks, I would be interested if if you agree or not. And I go, yeah, I think this is great. In fact, we could say it this way: imputed righteousness is justification, which is the righteousness that sets our hearts right with God again. A change, remember the natural state is enmity. That's the natural human heart, is enmity or distrusting, and a change to trust. This would be an act, this would be symbolically acted out when the dead branch is grafted into the vine. 
That's setting the dead branch right with God, grafting it into the brine. That's the imputed righteousness. And the imparted righteousness, which is the sanctification, is the flowing into the heart of the Holy Spirit who takes all of Christ's achievement and reproduces it in us. So if you want to make the distinction between imputed and imparted, that would be the distinction. Notice again, though, it's not a legal declaration. It's a transformation. And to confirm that that's what the author, who he quoted, meant when when she wrote, Justif- uh, we are justified... Uh, I say the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. Uh, the first is our title to heaven. Okay, the imputed is our title. Some would say it's legal. This is what she writes in another place. Desire of Ages, page 300. The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for heaven are found in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing towards the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that is waiting to be bestowed. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. So what, what is the, the, the step being described to give us our title? It is that heart change from distrust, where we can do it ourselves, to surrender and trust. That's the imputed heart change Imputed righteousness or justification. And then the sanctification is the imparted where it flows in. Again, though, it's a two-step process that is almost instantaneous. I think it's uh, a lot of semantics about not a lot. But the legal, the legal advocates will really promote that idea that imputed is a legal declaration, that you are righteous even though you're not. Yes? Could you make a, give us an example from a human relationship how something similar actually happens? Yes, a person is sick, and they're dying of a terminal condition. They don't trust their doctor, and he's the only one with a cure. The doctor wins them to trust, and their heart says, okay, I trust you now. They are now set right with the doctor. That's imputed righteousness. And then they start taking the remedy, which heals them. Does it make sense that the beginning process on our part is we commonly use the word repentance? Yeah, repentance would be certainly part of that process, yes. Because if you think about the the prodigal son story, because that is a story that from the, tells more about the prodigal son than it tells about both. When, when it talks about this, though, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 4, and talks about Abraham as the example of this, it specifically says Abraham trusted God. It didn't say Abraham repented of his sin. Even though oh, I'm sure that was part of that process. He repented away from self-sufficiency. He turned away from self-promotion, from self... Uh, and, 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 and basically surrendered in trust to God. And that was the change of heart. But it doesn't use that language, but of course it would have to be when you understand what repentance is. And I read an article in the Adventist World Review magazine, North American uh, edition of October 2017 this week, which I felt it was important to actually explore in the class today because it really is talking about this whole quarter. And uh, this particular article was focused on the Reformation, and it is entitled The Foundation of Every Good, The Paradigm Shift We Call the Reformation. It's on page 22 if you have that one. I'm going to read some excerpts, and I'm going to ask you to think it through with me. Because, And the reason I'm doing this, guys, let's be very clear here, this is not to find fault with the church. Not at all. This is to help expose within our church there is a battle between two views of God. Within every Christian church, there is a battle between two views of God. Which which do you see God to be? An authoritarian dictator who is a source of pain and suffering that we need to be protected from? Or God is our loving creator who, through Jesus Christ, is working to free us from sin and restore us to rightness and, and not only in attitude but in actual functioning and being so that we can be with him? Which way do you see it? There are two views. Um, and I'm going to uh, unpack 
unpack this and walk you through that the Reformation was designed to throw off of you, but it went from one ditch into the other ditch in a great degree and didn't actually get the core lie out. The core lie being this imperial law construct that keeps us uh, with theologies that prevent us from actually being reconciled. So let's walk through what this article says. The fresh understanding of the gospel in the 16th century brought changes of such extent um, that uh, Diarmaid McCulloch, uh, a well-known uh, scholar writing in the history of the Reformation, summarizes this paradigm shift as all things made new. Martin Luther's foundational contribution to theology was the recognition that salvation is a free gift of divine mercy and humans can do nothing to, uh, to get it except to receive it by faith alone. Now, is it true that salvation is a divine gift? Absolutely. Is it true that we receive it by faith? Absolutely. So these are, these are not problems here. Absolutely true. This idea was revolutionary since it stood in sharp contrast to the medieval uh, understanding of salvation in which the concept of merit played a crucial role. Now, notice this next sentence. We're going to pause on it. Sin was considered to be a problem of being which needed healing through a process of transformation. Amen. No. That's the original sin concept. Original sin concept is we have original guilt. We're all guilty. That's original guilt. Yeah, this is this is not this talking about original guilt. We are under guilt and therefore have the uh, the, the the need to be punished by the by the magistrate. That's original guilt idea, original sin. This is sin is considered to be a problem of being which needs healing through the process of transformation. Hmm. Well, it's presented here as if this is part of the lie that's being gotten rid of by the Re- by the Reformation. But does the Bible not teach that we are quote dead in trespass and sin? Amen. That we have carnal natures, that our hearts are selfish, that we need to be reborn, that we need to be regenerated, that we need to be recreated, that we need to be, that we are born in sin and conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. Does the Bible not teach all these things? Does salvation not actually mean, the actual word salvation mean healing or recreation or reconstruction? Does the word sozo in the Greek, which is translated saved, not mean to heal? If you went to the ER because you were bit by a rattlesnake and you said, doctor, please save me. I declare that you are perfectly healthy. Is that what it means? A declaration of health when you're still dying of a poison? Or do you want a forgiveness? Do you want a legal process? Do you want healing? Saving means healing. But in this article, it's put as if this is somehow wrong, that we should not consider or even look. Uh, the, 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 the true gospel isn't about we have a condition that's out of harmony with God, that's selfish in nature, that we need to be healed from. No, that's not the problem. It's going to suggest we, we should move away from that. And thus it substitutes a false legal diagnosis that gives a form of godliness, but has no power. Let's go to the next sentence in the article. Consequently, it was believed that salvation was a result of becoming, quote, and they're quoting from an article here, another source, becoming a holy person by cooperation with grace by all means possible. Is this false? Did Jesus not teach, quote, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Unquote. That's not me. That's Matthew 5.48. Are we not called to be a holy priesthood? 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 9. A holy priesthood. Are we called to be a holy priesthood? Are we called to be perfect? Did Jesus say, and you can check your Bibles if you'd like, Matthew 5, 48. Did he say, be therefore declared perfect? Or did he say, be perfect? Be perfect. It's a state of being. 
that we are called to. The, this article is going to deny this. It's going to deny that the Christian gospel calls you to a change in state of being, that that's not necessary. That's a lie that needs to be rejected. And this is, and the point I'm bringing this up is Christianity is infected with a lie that prevents us from taking the gospel to the world and prevents us hastening the day. So even though some of these statements are true, like sin is a state of being that needs healing, they're saying it's. They're, and saying, they're saying that Protestantism eradicated that error from. Yes. This is what they're saying. Yeah. And they're saying, and in fact, you will hear people argue, and I'm going to show you the distinction that I'm not a Protestant, that I'm teaching Catholicism. Because they're saying Catholicism causes for, for a change in, in the being. Then that should be rejected. I'm going to walk you through what actually happened. But let's think of the possibilities here. Because they're saying, again, consequently, consequently, it was believed, notice, it was believed that salvation was a result of becoming a holy person by cooperation with grace by all means possible. They are going to deny this. They're going to say, no, no, no. Salvation does not have anything to do with you becoming holy. Salvation is a process when you accept the legal payment of Jesus in your record books of heaven where God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. There's nothing about changing you going on here. And they miss actually the whole point of the Reformation. This is the, the corruption that's happened. But let's, add, let's look at the possibilities here. What are actually the options? And, you, and let's, let's just go logically through them. Option one, we become holy on our own. And you tell me which one's true. Not true. Two, we become holy in cooperation with God. Option three, God uses his power to make people holy without any cooperation. Option four, we don't become holy at all. Option five, God plays the grand fraud... And no one becomes holy, but God proclaims that they are actually holy. Number two. But they're saying that's a lie. This is in the review, October 2017. Let's keep going. This system implied that humans must add their effort to the work of God's grace in order to achieve salvation. Since eternal life came as a reward for cooperating with divine grace. The fault lies in viewing salvation problem through the imposed legal law lens. Thus, adding our effort is viewed as adding to the healing or saving value of what Christ achieved. That's how it's viewed. As if Christ's achievements alone were not enough to save us. And that's a lie. And that lie should be rejected. We suggest that anything you do adds to what Christ achieved. That's wrong. We don't, we don't take that position. The Protestant view is correct to reject any idea that suggests Christ's achievements alone were insufficient to save the species human. Or that any action on our part adds to what Christ did to accomplish salvation of the species human. However, the Protestants are wrong to suggest that there's no cooperation with divine agencies for our personal Salvation. Or that there's no effort. Or there's no effort involved. This is all resolved when you return to design law. In that reality, we understand that Christ, singly and alone, put the species right with God in his own human personhood while simultaneously procuring the remedy that heals all who trust him. In other words, the species was put right with God in the person of Jesus Christ, who also procured what was necessary to save individual members of the species, who by faith are connected to him. When we have that heart trust, we're connected, we open the heart, we're grafted into the vine, so to speak, and the righteousness of Christ that he achieved flows in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We don't produce that righteousness. We receive that righteousness as a gift. But notice where the righteousness in this model is going. It's going into the heart, mind, and character of the one who trusts. 
such that they are actually being changed or healed. And the record books of heaven will simply reveal or reflect the accuracy of what's happening in the hearts of the persons. So the cooperation does not create the remedy or earn the remedy. It only partakes or receives the remedy earned by Christ. So the Catholic view is that our works add to what Christ has done and our works are necessary to earn or merit or be worthy. If we don't do the works, then we are not worthy of receiving what Christ has done. We reject this idea. However, the Protestant view that sin is a problem which is a legal problem and salvation has something to do with a declared adjustment in record books in heaven and has no transforming power in the center, we reject that view. Keep going with the next sentence in the article. Purgatory, a concept considered the theological foundation for a vast church business in the medieval period, including the payment for salvation by purchasing indulgences, became for the reformers the symbol of all that was wrong with this view of salvation. Protestants quite correctly rejected the teaching of purgatory, along with anything that we do to merit or purchase or pay for salvation. This idea of purchasing salvation became accepted because of the false law lens. What do you do when you get in legal trouble? You pay a fine. And this whole idea that uh, sin requires a payment. And the payment's the blood of the Son. Uh, corrupted the whole view of what salvation is such that we could make payments. In fact, it was to be rid of purgatory was one of the main reasons Luther invented. Invented the idea of a legally declared justification. That is not in the scripture. That's invented by Luther. And he invented it because the church held the entire Christianized world captive under this idea that the church held the keys. And if you, and when you die, uh, and you haven't had all the sins perfectly purged out of your life, and you have some problem you're still struggling with, in your life. Then you don't go to heaven, you go to a place called purgatory where the where the sins are being will be purged from you and you will be eventually perfected through your suffering in purgatory and eventually sent to heaven unless you have loved ones that have died and they're in purgatory being suffering but the purpose of course is to purge them from their unremedied sins that they still had before they died and you can accelerate that process if you if you send gold or or other offerings to the church then if you pay them with money then in the old uh, the old collection uh, you know the offering um, collection. Wherever a whenever a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Was was one of the common things that they would do to collect money. And Luther saw the corruption of this, the ridiculousness of this, the ugliness of this, and he wanted to come up with a theory that would absolutely cut the legs out from under this theory, take all the power away from purgatory, remove people's fear from purgatory, and so he came up with penal legal theology. And penal legal theology, if true, destroys purgatory. Because penal legal theology says, at the cross, all sins of all human beings from all time, past, present, and future, were all placed on Christ and fully punished in Christ. Therefore, there's no remaining punishment for anybody. You declare the legal blood of Jesus, and there is no purging necessary because it's been purged in Christ. Purgatory's gone. Yes. It's also implied in that definition that this is the acts of sin. It's not a sinful condition. That's right. It's the acts it's the of sin that are taken care of. So the Protestants were right in rejecting purgatory, 
But they were wrong in continuing to view salvation through the human law construct, that God's law functions like ours in making the legal process. Next, next sentence in the article. The theology of the cross lay at the heart of Luther's argument, highlighting the centrality of God's mercy despite human sin, instead of demanding from people virtue as a prerequisite for grace. Now, this is quite true. We don't have to do anything to earn grace. God so loved the world that he gave his only... While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was our great need and God's great love that resulted in Christ coming as our Savior. Not because we did something to influence him to say, wow, those guys are trying so hard. They've worked so hard. They've built such a great temple. They've given so many offerings. Uh, They've donated their own kids on altars and so forth. Um, You know what? That's moved me. I think I'll help them now. That's all pagan. That's wrong. No. So we're right to reject this idea that they have to do something to merit grace. The key expression in Luther's thought is the righteousness of God. In Romans 1.18 through 3.20, Paul establishes that argument. Paul establishes that argument that all people are guilty. And so the main problem of facing of, of uh, the main problem of humanity is facing God's justice. Pause. Did you hear this? I'll say it again. Paul establishes, according to this author, the argument that all people are guilty. And so the main problem of humanity is facing God's justice. Here we see the false law infection clearly. Paul does not teach that all people are guilty. He teaches that all people are sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we have a carnal nature. We're dead in trespass and sin. Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 2.13. Um, that without God's intervention, sin results in death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not the punishment of God is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. James 1.15, those who sow to the carnal nature, this is Paul again, in Galatians 6.8, those who sow from the carnal nature, to, from that nature, reap destruction. This is what Paul teaches. You don't have to fear the justice of God. You have to fear unremedied sin in your life. If you don't let God heal you, you will die from sin. This is what the Bible is teaching. But when you accept the false law construct, which has been came in through the imperialistic constructs of Rome, and the Reformation came around, they threw off some of these things, but they did not get the law right yet. The rest of Scripture teaches we should crave God's justice. Yes, we should beg for it. We should embrace it because justice, because justice in in the Bible is delivering the oppressed, not punish. Exactly, the biblical justice is always delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. But this article is teaching the justice of God would be punishing the sins. That idea comes from accepting human law rather than understanding God's law. In the in the pre-Reformation theology, the righteousness of God was equivalent to the punishment by divine justice. Do you see? And this idea was both in the Roman church, the pre-Reformation theology, and according to this, Luther challenged this view as a result of the study of Psalms, Romans, Galatians, in the period between 1513 and 1517, while he lectured at Wittenberg. Uh, Luther established biblically that um, the justitia dia, God's justice, is not understood in terms of God's righteousness by which God himself is justified, but as the righteousness by which he justifies sinful human beings. Yes, this is so. God is justifying or setting us right. Righteousness is a gift from God given for the benefit of humanity. It is a gift by which God declares believers righteous, even though they are not in themselves righteous. Here's that legal idea coming in. Now, it's true, we are not in ourselves righteous. And then he threw that in, which I think was a helpful thing to throw in. 
Many times you won't see that in there. But at the end of the day, what this legal view is that you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. Not just not in yourself, because there's no cooperative effort going on. We've already read they've thrown that out. What happens in the in this penal view is you're declared to be righteous even though you're not in yourself or in cooperation with God, because that's thrown out. You're not righteous. You're just declared. And this idea so deeply infected Christianity. All, all Protestant denominations have this view. It keeps millions trapped in that form of godliness with no power. Now notice the next sentence. This new definition of righteousness points to God as the foundation of everything good. Note, this new definition, yes. Again, they recognize it was a new definition made up by Martin Luther. It was not biblical. To counter the abuses, it was made up to counter the abuses of the indulgences and the, and the, um, and the purgatory and things caught. So he, he studied and he came up with this idea and he promoted it and we are still teaching it like it's true rather than having grown past it 500 years later. So quick overview. Here's a quick overview of what I understand is happening of human history. Adam and Eve were created sinless with the capacity. Now I'm going to listen carefully because some people may disagree with me on this with the capacity to exercise in their sinlessness their own abilities to develop a perfect sinless character. They had the capacity to say no to temptation, to choose truth prior to sin. They, exercising their own ability, could have developed a perfect human character. But they did not. They, in fact, deviated from God's design. They, humanity became infected with fear and selfishness, and God began intercession immediately, Genesis 3, Speaking to the serpent, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. God began interceding with sinfulness to hold at bay what sin would do to his creation if God didn't do anything. And God's holding it at bay and he intercedes in three places. You know, God's intercession. Principalities and powers of darkness are being held in check. We see that all through scripture. He intercedes, Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, the Holy Spirit is interceding in the hearts and minds of sinners to put a desire for good, to, to, to woo, to long, to make us unsatisfied in this sinful world so that we won't long for a better world. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he interceded with the trajectory of what sin was doing to the species. In Adam, we read in Romans in this today's lesson, in Adam, death came to all human beings. Jesus partook of humanity and altered the outcome. Through Jesus, we have a different trajectory. We can be grafted into the vine, and instead of having eternal death, we get eternal life. He interceded with what sin was doing to the species. The Jewish nation was given truth about God to take to the world. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know their mission was to convert the world, to be a priesthood. All nations were to come and come to the knowledge of God, preparing the world, if they did their mission, to meet the Messiah at his first advent. That was their mission. But they focused on rule-keeping. After they got over their paganism, they focused on rule-keeping rather than love for God and love for the neighbor. And there was no heart change in many. Jesus came and threw off the legal approach to salvation, revealed the truth about God while developing a perfect human character, destroyed the devil's power, Hebrews 2.14, destroyed death, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, destroyed the devil's work, 1 John 3.8. The New Testament church taught that Jesus overcame sin and Satan for humanity, becoming the second Adam, perfecting humanity, and that he accomplished this singly and alone, a divine act of grace that no other human being can add to what Christ has done. That's what was taught in the New Testament. However, the New Testament church taught that the saved must partake 
of what God has accomplished through Christ. And this partaking was a cooperative relationship in which the sinner had to make choices to trust God and to follow in their actions God's methods and designs. Their choosing does not create the remedy, nor add to what Christ accomplished, but internalizes and participates in what Christ has has done. And this is the only way your individuality can be changed. See, God has the power right now from heaven to reach into your mind and overwrite any sinful inclinations, any sinful desires, any sinful tendencies. He has the power to overwrite it all and write in perfect human character. But to do that without your cooperation erases you. You as an individual don't exist anymore. The only way to erase the sinfulness in your heart and keep you as the individual is for your cooperative participation. You willfully choosing to say yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, I agree, Lord. Yes. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Romans 14. And so all this results in an internal transformation of heart and mind, being reborn, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, having the law written on the heart, having the mind of Christ, This is what Paul meant by work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or James, that faith without works is dead. What would that mean in a today analogy that somebody asked for? It would be like saying if your doctor, if you have faith in your doctor who has a remedy for your condition and you have faith in your doctor but you refuse to take the remedy, your faith in your doctor is worthless. Now taking the remedy, you don't cure yourself. You don't provide your own salvation. You don't provide your own healing. You simply take what's provided. The New Testament church operated on design law, not imposed law, and set about trying to heal hearts and minds. Then the imposed law lie reinfected Christianity, and the idea of the renewal of heart was retained initially, but confused with legal applications. And thus came to believe that healing required legal action done by both the sinner and the church. You had to go through certain rituals. You had to have be baptized in a certain way. You had to take uh, part, partake in a certain uh, communion. You had to have uh, certain things declared uh, uh, by the organization who holds the keys. And this became a very legal process. Thus the gospel became corrupted and people became exploited. The Protestant Reformation threw off the idea of human works providing salvation, teaching instead the reality that the remedy to sin was accomplished by Christ singly and alone, and no human work could add to what Christ has done. However, they simultaneously rejected the idea of being a of, of sin being a condition of being requiring heart transformation and renewal, and thus it perpetuated a false legal view of God and salvation. So, with all that in mind, oh, and then the SDA Church, by the way, my view historically, if you look at the Reformation, was to if you look at the Reformation, and you know, first there were the Lutherans, and then there were they what the Anabaptists, and then and then you know, uh, later there's uh, Methodists and Wesley, and and all these, and everyone that's coming along, they are taking what the Reformers have done, and they're saying, oh yeah, but here's another piece. Let's add this piece to it. Let's add this piece to it. Let's add this piece to it. And most of those organizations, when Luther died, they didn't move past Luther. They kind of, kind of stuck there. Okay, and the Anabaptists said, oh yeah, but Luther did, was still sprinkling. And they're doing that in Luther. Ba- Baptists, by, well, we know it was, uh, the Bible teaches immersion. Let's add the immersion piece. And, and so there's a new group then that's broke off and another group breaks off. And we see this reformation kind of moving forward. And the Adventist church, in my understanding, was supposed to, one single truth above all others, they were to bring to Christianity. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all them in the midst. Come back to worship the creator, the designer, whose laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And eliminate this dictator view of God. And thus, one of the founders of our church wrote regarding this idea of salvation being a cooperative effort. 
Remember we read earlier in the article, like, this is a bad thing? This is out of uh, Our High Calling, page 310. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of human. Excuse me. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies. Divine influences and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. It means basically believing without evidence. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Don't ask questions, don't think. Because you've been given a mind, you've been given an individuality, and God wants you to develop it. He does not dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. Okay, now we're going to get to our lesson. <laughs> Does that make you sad? It's, yes, this... We are in a war, guys. And what's the saying in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5? That we live in the world, we don't wage war like the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. We are in a war over ideas that center on the knowledge of God. And one of the strongest weapons of the devil the biggest lies is that God's law functions like human law, and therefore everything cascades off of that. The justice you come up with, the atonement you come up with, the mission of Christ you come up with, God's action in dealing with sinners you come up with, all is warped if you accept that view of God. We have to come back to worship him who made, the designer, the creator. Yes? And those lies have, they're symptoms that are visible. You can see there's people that they're trying to move to different avenues of understanding God. Well, we need to be more emotional approach. We need to feel him more. Well, how can we... Well, I like what you said, the symptoms. And one of the symptoms, so we look for evidences. And one of the evidence, if you worship an authoritarian God and impose God, then justice looks like what? Punishment. And so you use authoritarian consequences. You set down rules and then you punish or coerce people. And you watch the methods being employed in, in how people run churches. Some pastors are very grace-oriented, truth and love, leave people free. It's okay if you see it differently. We're going to love you anyway. It's all good. Other pastors are very authoritarian. You question me. I'm the Lord's anointed. How dare you question me? We're going to have to have a church meeting and have you disciplined. Different methods being employed. And it can go more than just a local church. It can go into conferences or unions or even the whole world conference. can have these methods come in and be very authoritarian and coercive. And when that happens, you know that the law of God is not being followed. They've accepted the lie. Sabbath lesson, it says, um, Adam and Jesus. And when you see the title, Adam and Jesus, do you immediately think of two paths, two directions, two conditions, two inheritances, two outcomes? Adam, fear, selfishness, sin, terminal condition that results in death. Jesus, love, truth, holiness, remedy that cures the terminal condition and results in eternal life. A memory text. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into this grace wherewith, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When you read that, what do you think? Do you immediately go, what law lens am I using? Design law, impose law. Do you hear legal process? If you hear the legal process, does it sound something like this? 
Therefore, being declared legally innocent, we are no longer under God's death sentence and can, because of the legal payment that Jesus made, we have access to God's grace. That's how many hear it. But think about justification. Do you understand that justification actually means putting what's not right, right? Setting things. It's not an accounting. It's not a declaring. So for instance, have you ever justified the margins on a Word document? You ever done that? Now, when you justify your margins, do you actually move words that are out of line over to be in line? Are you actually moving the words? Or do you simply declare that they're in line but leave them out of line? Think that through. This is the corruption. God declares that you've been set right even though you haven't been. No, real justification is setting you right. It's not setting a book right. Not setting a book right? That's right. You mean a record book. Yeah, there you go. First paragraph, it says in the lesson, Paul established the point that justification or acceptance with God comes only through faith in Jesus, for his righteousness alone is enough to give us the right standing with our Lord. Building on that great uh, truth, uh, Paul now expounds more on the theme, showing that salvation has to be by faith and not by works, not even for someone as righteous as Abraham, Paul steps back to look at the big picture and what causes cause sin and suffering and death and how th- the solution is found in Christ and what he has done for the human race. When they said in the very first sentence, the point that justification or acceptance with God comes only through faith, that's the end of the quote, are they saying that justification and acceptance with God are one and the same thing? See how the sentence reads? The point that justification or acceptance with God comes only through faith in Jesus, for his righteousness alone is enough to give us the right standing with our Lord. I think they're expanding it there. Are they saying justification? Yeah. Hmm. If so, what are they saying justification is actually doing here then? Functionally, what's it doing? Is it doing something to get God to accept us? Seem way we can be accepted. Yeah, in the legal view, the problem with sin is not the sinner. It is God's attitude of acceptance, legal condemnation, rejection, wrath, anger, unless we need Jesus to pay the legal price to this offended God so that God will now accept us. This is paganism. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because God would kill us if he didn't. Don't you understand that? God's a God of justice and holiness, and and sin is offensive to him. He can't stand it. Sin can't enter his presence. And and yes, yes, Jesus died while we were sinners, because if not, God would be forced by holiness and righteousness to kill us. Wendell? John (laughs) 3.17. He did not come into the world to condemn us. Yes, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn us. The Father's already done that in his justice. Jesus came in the world to take away the penalty and take the punishment so God can then, in his justice, still save us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. (laughs) Stand strong. strong. (laughs) Genuine justification is setting that which is wrong or deviant right. Human beings, after Adam's sin, were out of harmony with God and his design. They're in a terminal condition. Pardon? I need some help to know when you're speaking ironically and when you're not. <laughs> it was ironic then. Okay, you up now. <laughs> okay. did, did anyone know that I wasn't being ironic? <laughs> okay. Wendell's exasperated sigh should have helped. <laughs> 
Jesus uh, took up humanity, terminal dying, and, and in his own humanity. Now, get your mind around this. The species human, the race human, the, the creation known as human, was perfectly restored to rightness with God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully human. He lived a sinless life. He destroyed uh, the infection that says he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light and so forth. So think about it this way. As long as we have one panda in in the world, pandas are not extinct. As long as Jesus Christ exists, the human species was saved. The species was saved in Jesus. But simultaneously, he also procured what was necessary for any other individual specimen to be saved, to partake in what he's done for us. The question really only remains not whether the species is going to be saved. That's done. The question remains how many other specimens will join him. That's the outstanding question at this point. So Jesus is the second Adam the new head of the human race. Thus, the species was set right in Jesus, not by a legal declaration or a legal imposition of punishment. We weren't set right because he was punished on our behalf, but by his healing actions. Just like justifying your margins, you actually move the words. Jesus took humanity upon himself and actually moved humanity back to perfection. Perfected in the person of Jesus Christ. This is true justification. Now, all human beings who trust Jesus can partake of what he's achieved. And we are individually justified when we are first set right in heart and mind from distrust to trust. We open the heart, receive the spirit who takes Christ's perfection and reproduces in us. What does it mean that the righteousness of Christ alone is, according to the uh, paragraph here, is enough to give us right standing with the Lord? Depends on which law lends again. With design law, it's true that the righteousness of God makes us acceptable. Why? Because God only accepts life. Healing, restoration. He will not accept death, disease, decay, pain, and suffering. It'd be like you if you had a child with a terminal disease. The only acceptable thing for you that you will really accept is the healing of your child. Everything else is unacceptable. Isn't that right? That's it. Thus the righteousness of Jesus, which is the remedy, the perfection of humanity, and without which we remain terminal. Without the righteousness of Jesus, it's unacceptable because we're dead in trespass and sin, and God does not like his children dying. Next paragraph. Through the fall of one man, Adam, all humanity faced condemnation, alienation, and death. Through the victory of one man, Jesus, all the world was placed on a new footing before God. By faith in Jesus, the record of their sins and the punishment due for those sins could be remitted, could be forgiven, and forever pardoned. Do you hear the infection here? Yes. Do you hear it? It's deeply trapped many people because they live in fear now of God. If, if, if there's some sin I haven't forget, for, confessed, if, if I didn't confess it, then does that mean it, it wasn't punished properly? But, but what did John the Baptist say? Did he say, the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of God for my sins? Is that what John the Baptist said? Or the Lamb of God who takes away the record of my sins? That's what they're saying that he came to take away. Take away the record or the punishment? No, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin the sin. It'd be like saying, here is the, um, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the record of your terminal disease. I want the terminal disease gone. Yes. So we could help this if we define record in the place where the record is actually kept. 
It's not a separate book. It's kept inside my mind. I have a record of my sins, and so to cleanse the record in my mind, if you redefine or think of the record as the place where it actually is. Well, I would actually uh, maybe use this analogy. I like where you're going. I, I don't disagree. But to the degree that there is an external record, to the degree that there is, and the Bible talks about the Lamb's Book of Life and the records are open and so forth, to the degree there is, we view them as medical records. And medical records accurately, to the best of our ability, and God with his perfect diagnostic abilities, keeps a record of what you just said is actually going on in the person. Okay? So yes, there, I think I'm okay with an external record, but it's a record of what you just said, of what's actually within the person. Not some legal record, which in legal records we're always trying to erase things, regardless of what's going on in the heart of the person. Well, we can't admit that into evidence, Your Honor, because it was obtained without a warrant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It doesn't really matter that the person's a, 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 a thief or a criminal or a murderer. It does, that doesn't matter. The condition of the heart's not important. It's, it's the legality that's important. No, I think records as medical records work perfectly fine because then it accurately diagnoses the sickness, but it also accurately diagnoses partaking of the remedy and that the sickness goes into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, meaning cancer cells remit back to their previously cancer-free state or healthy state. We, our characters, remit back to God's original design, and the records will reveal that. But I liked exactly where you put the emphasis. It's what's happening in the, in the minds and hearts of people. So um, George MacDonald, a Congregationalist uh, preacher of the 19th century, wrote uh, in his book, um, Discovering the Character of God, says, the Lord never came to deliver men from the consequences of the sins while those sins yet remained. Yet feeling nothing of the dread hatefulness of their sin, men have constantly taken the word that the Lord came to deliver us from our sins to mean that he came to save us from the punishment of our sins. This idea has terribly corrupted the preaching of the gospel. The message of the good news has not been truly communicated. Unbelie un unable to believe in the forgiveness of the Father in heaven, imagining him not at liberty to forgive or incapable of forgiving forthright, not really believing him God who is fully our Savior, but a God bound either in his own nature or by a, a law above him and compulsory upon him to exact some recompense or satisfaction for sin, a multitude of religious teachers have taught their fellow men that Jesus came to bear our punishment and save us from hell. But in, in that, they have misrepresented as two missing. Amen. Brilliant. Brilliant stuff. And I'm going to suggest to you the church cannot finish its end-time mission while taking a pagan God concept to the world. This idea that God is the source of inflicted pain and suffering, and he needed the sacrifice of a human, a human's blood sacrifice to propitiate his wrath, to hold back his some have the idea, based on things like this, that the records get erased, that we'll have no memory uh, or record of sin of the righteous in heaven. Yes, we'll have the wicked, because they didn't get theirs confessed. The blood of Jesus was implied to the record book, and their sins weren't erased out of the historical record. So we will have the, the wicked's records to go over. But the record of the righteous, there's no record of their sins in heaven. This is a common teaching. Very common in Adventism. Many people rest secure. They're terrified, in fact, of going to heaven and having some sin known. Well, let's think that through. Did King David of old ha uh, confess his sins? Did he repent in genuine repentance, as far as we know? Did he have his sins forgiven by God? Were they erased from history? When, the, when you read your Bible, do the angels in heaven know what you're talking about? We have no idea. What are they? Are they making this stuff up about David? We, we don't know anything about this. It's not in our book. Not in our books. Is, is that what they think? Hmm. 
When the woman washed Jesus' feet with the expensive ointment and was being criticized by those around the table, Jesus said the following in uh, Luke 7:47. I tell you, her many sins have, be for, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. What are the implications here? If you don't remember your sins, will it undermine your love for God? Think about it this way. You have a child, again, these metaphors, you have a child who's dying, and the doctor says there's no hope. But then a new doctor comes into the room and says, hey, if you trust me, I've got a cure. And they give him one pill, and your child is restored to perfect health. Do you appreciate that doctor? Do you value that doctor? Do you have love and affection? He gave it to you for free, too. He didn't even charge you. But how about then the next day, the record of all that sickness and the cure are erased. You don't remember. You have a healthy child, but you have no recollection of their sickness or their cure. It's forgotten. No memory. Do you still love the doctor as much today? Healthy child, but no memory. You don't love that doctor as much, do you? You see? Who do you think, who wants to undermine your love for God? He wants to erase the history that gives you such profound love and affection. Keep going. Give some more evidence. This is out of Revelation, uh, quoting Revelation 14, 3 and 4. It says, And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now, this is, this is metaphorical, singing a song. What do you think it means? What do you think this song is that they sing and nobody else can sing? Um, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And somebody else starts to sing, boy, there's an angel to get them. You're not allowed to sing that song. <laughs> is it a restricted song? It's a, it's, a, it's a copyrighted song. You have to pay, pay premium to sing that song. Why can only these groups sing it? There's a reason. They experienced it. Ah, this is the song of their experience. Now, can they sing the song of their experience if they have no recollection and memory of their experience? No, they can't. And so, out of um, the book Education, I re- read the following. In his temple, uh, this is quoting Psalm 29.9, in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory, and, and that Bible quote. And, and the song which the ransom ones will sing the song of their experience will declare the glory of God. Do you agree? So this idea, and I'm telling you, it's deep in Christianity. People get upset when you suggest that the records are not going to be erased. But the records are not going to be erased. (laughs) I'll give you one more quote from one of the founders of the Adventist Church in Maranatha, page 346. It says, Every question of truth or error in the long-standing controversy has now been made plain. The result of rebellion, the fruits of setting aside the divine statues, have been laid open to, to the view of all created intelligences. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast with the government of God has been presented to the whole universe. Satan's own works have condemned him. Notice what condemns him? Not a tribunal. His own works. God's wisdom, his justice, and goodness stand fully vindicated. It is seen that all his dealings in the controversy have been conducted with respect to the eternal good of his people and the good of all the worlds he has created. The history of sin will stand to all eternity as a witness that with the existence of God's law is bound up the happiness of all the beings he created. 
the history. What's, what's history mean? Are we keeping records or not keeping records? According to this author, we are. I want to suggest to you, in fact, it's the memory of what happened here and what sin does to God's creation, what sin actually is and how it destroys. That recollection and then the contrast of the freedom we have in Christ and the healing and restoration we come into harmony with him, that contrast is part of what gives us security that sin will never arise again. Why would he have the scars in his hands if we're not supposed to remember why he got them? It's Satan who wants to arrest the records because the records of reality, of truth, reveal the amazing perfection, goodness, and righteousness and holiness of God and the evil corruption and vileness of Satan. He stands open and exposed when when all truth is seen. Who do you think wants to erase that history? Not the righteous, not the holy, not the good, the source of evil. That's where this teaching comes from. Can we argue that it's actually necessary to prevent sin from coming back? I mean, we'd have to have a remembrance. So so I want to say here, by the way, in case some people uh, um, question this and anything I've said here today about all this stuff, I believe that Jesus was our substitute. I've got to say that language for some people because after everything I've said, they'll say, oh, he didn't believe in the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. Of course I do, but I believe it biblically. Here's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's substitution. Right? But why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. What's the reason? To take our penalty? To erase the records? To be punished? To restore us to righteousness. That's Bible. This is healing and regeneration. Boy, oh boy, where do I want to jump to in the last few minutes of this class? Um, Today's notes, I had 25 pages of notes today. Wow. That's three lessons worth for me. (laughs) So in Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, being justified is literally having been justified. The Greek verb, verb represents the action of being completed. We have been declared righteous or regarded as righteous, though not through any deeds of the law, but through our having accepted Jesus Christ. The perfect life that Jesus lived on earth, his perfect law-keeping has been credited to us. At the same time, all of our sins have been laid on Jesus. God has reckoned that Jesus committed those sins, not us, and that way we can be spared the punishment that we deserve. Do you see the corruption? This is so corrupt. I mean, it's just so distorted. Uh, You give a comment, because I want to just unpack why that's so distorted. Go ahead. It helps me to think about... Does justification by faith mean the same as saying faith justifies? And if faith justifies, that tells me where I need to put my effort. And that is to see Jesus Christ in his loveliness and in what he has told me about God. So then that experience leads me into renewal and belonging, accepting Jesus in being his, his family. Thank you. Back to this question, what you heard here. It is, a, it is about Jesus. It is about God. God is. Yes. Right. And so we get all tied up in all the the deviations because they're crazy. Yes, because these these other views of God, though, so you can fix your eyes on Christ. 
And if your view of God in Christ is this penal legal view of, a, of God as a source of inflicted pain that we need protection from, then we cr- line up theology after theology, doctrine after doctrine, that functions to hide and protect us from God. Which is just the opposite of the biblical model that we pray, Lord, search me and see the wicked way in me, created me a clean heart, O God, that we come back to have an openness with our Creator and unification with our Creator. That's the true Bible message. But So you can be a very... And, and Christ taught at the end of time, they're going to come and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Cast out demons in your name. They're doing this in the name of Jesus. Not in the name of Buddha. And he says, get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. See, they, you can fix your eyes on Christ, but the question is, what character traits does he have? What methods does he use? How does his law function? Do you have this dictator God who needs to be, you need protection from by the blood of Jesus standing there pleading his blood to the Father so he won't kill you? That, that, that actually causes you to not fully trust him. Yeah, so back to here, it's what it says in this lesson. All our sins have been laid on Jesus. God reckoned that Jesus committed those sins, not us. And on, uh, and that way we can be spared the punishment that we deserve. Because who was punished in our place here, of course? Jesus. If you think, if you're a thinking person, you're going to go, wait a second, this has got a lot of problems here. For instance, if this were actually true, does that mean that, you know, Hitler and Stalin and abortionists who have killed hundreds of millions of people, or maybe even prevented them from being born, so that quadrillions of sins were never committed. We're reducing Christ's suffering on the cross. If this is true, all the sins are placed and we're punished appropriately. So if we can reduce the number of sins committed, then we can reduce the suffering. That makes no sense at all. It's ridiculous. The last sentence of that paragraph. What more glorious news could be for the sinner? Yes, and, and, and I, I've got that in there. I was coming to it. And the glorious news is the truth. The truth could be instead of this corruption. But I want to keep going with this idea. Who, in this view, who's punishing Jesus? Who's the source of pain and suffering? It's, it's God. God is the one you need protection from. So let's ask a couple more questions. If you believe that the unrepentant wicked will suffer many days or for all eternity, depending on your view, and I don't care, I'm not going to argue that point. You have your view. Many days before they die, or all eternity for sin. How could Jesus pay that penalty in only a few hours? All the sins of all the world, he somehow was able to be punished for in a few hours. But then we turn around and teach, God will punish people many days or for all eternity for their sin. Is that equal? Hmm. How about this one? If God forgives us our debts as we forgive our debtors, How is it we say that Jesus paid our debt? If someone pays your debt, can the person who received full payment turn around and say to you, now that I've been paid, I'm going to forgive your debt. Your debt's forgiven now that I've been paid. That doesn't work either. This is the contradictory nonsense that causes people to have a blind, stupid credulity that destroys human reason. Well, God's ways are my ways. I I just take that on faith. I don't know. It's just somehow right. Uh, Torturing people for all eternity somehow seemed like that's the right thing to do. If God punished Jesus, who lived a perfect life, that'd really give me cause to wonder if God was really going to get me. Exactly. So here's another one about this idea of the punishment aspect. Does this mean that if God were not to use his power to inflict punishment for sin that sinners could live forever, eternal life in sin, because there's really nothing wrong with sin. There's just something wrong with God who'll kill you for it. But that's what it means, truly. If God has to inflict death for sin, if he could just get some anger management classes, 
and hold back his infliction. We have eternal life in sin because sin doesn't really harm. It just offends God who, who, who gets his personality and feelings hurt that we didn't obey his rules and he lashes out and kills us. Who, who do you think wants you to believe in a God like that? Satan. That's Satan's view of God, but it is corrupted Christianity. And I'm going to say, suggest to you, we cannot finish the third angel's message. We can't take the final message of mercy to the world, which is the truth of God's character of love, until we eliminate this false legal view out of our teachings. Amen. There's more in the lesson, a quote from Hard Sayings of the Bible and, and other places, uh, a lot more in the lesson actually. But we don't have time to go through it. Some really beautiful quotes. Huh? So the notes will be up, I think, later today or tomorrow. And uh, I think we got through about 15 pages of the notes. So, <laughs> Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who created this universe in the most amazing way to live in harmony with your nature and character of love. And that harmony with your law is life. He who finds, seeks righteousness and, and love finds life according to the scripture because that's how you built life to operate. Lord, humanity has been so confused about you, believing this idea that you're the source of pain and suffering and inflicted punishment, and they call it justice. Things are just upside down and backwards in so many ways, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit be poured out, the spirit of love and truth, enlighten our minds to understand it, to experience, to be renewed, to partake and participate in the victories of Jesus. But more than that, to be empowered, to be effective in sharing this message to free hearts and minds. For your kingdom, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.